Advent, a time of waiting, preparation, and joyful expectation for Jesus' birth. But Advent is not just about the past, it's also about the future, the second coming of our Savior, the day when hope, love, joy, and peace will culminate into Christ's glorious return. Until then, we wait. Well, all right. Uh, Like Pastor Steve said, we are a couple of weeks, less than a couple of weeks away from our first Christmas Eve service. We've got five this year, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you would take this and just pray over it, God has somebody in your life, someone in your sphere of influence that needs to hear, needs to get this invitation. Here's my promise to you. When they come, they will not only experience the warmth and everything that makes Illuminate Community Church unique and special, but they are also going to be exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's most important. Now, by the grace of God, we've just opened up our new kids' space, so we're actually having a special programming on those services for kids as well. So as I said last week, we just want to leverage everything that God has given us and really make this, uh, this Christmas Eve, these Christmas Eve services extra special. So please pray over that. Think about who you can invite. So today is week three of Advent, and so our Advent theme is joy. And I think if you were to ask most people for an explanation or uh, an illustration of joy. It would have something to do with, with happiness that surrounds circumstances or events. And that's actually how the Bible at times describes joy as well. For example, the psalmist writes and says that a good bottle of wine brings joy to the heart. There are birthdays, there are weddings, there are anniversaries, there are so many events, circumstances, that fill us with joy. And yet, at the same time, we fully realize that life is not one nonstop joy fest. There are birthdays, but there are also funerals. And the reality is there is, there is tremendous loss that we experience, tremendous heartache that we experience in this life. And so this is what makes biblical or uniquely Christian joy something different. And so this may be new to you. But from the Bible's perspective, joy is not found in an event or a circumstance, but rather joy is found in a person. And this is what makes the Christmas message so unique. And now we begin to understand better when the angels make their announcement, the birth of Jesus, this is actually what they say. Joy. Joy has entered the world. But not the kind of joy that we experience day in and day out. It's this transcendent kind of joy. And you're going to see that in the exact languaging that's used. So let's go back in time, 2,000 years, to when that choir of angels began to announce this birth. Found in Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 8. It says this. And in the same region, that would be near the town of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. We've read this many times where when angels show up in the Bible, they're quick to say, do not fear, because the people are quite terrified. Angels are these supernatural, higher order created beings. 
And so that's exactly what the angels have to say here. Again, and the angel said to them, verse 10, fear not. And here's why. I'm actually, I'm actually bringing you good news of great joy. Now, just remember that phrase, great joy. We're gonna come back to that in a second. That will be for all the people, that is everybody. Well, okay, so tell us, what is this great joy? What is it that's coming? Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, also known as Bethlehem, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, how are we gonna know? How are we gonna identify him? Well, God's pretty good at giving signs. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a most unusual place, in a manger. Uh, essentially, that's the place where animals are kept. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God right after the birth of this announcement. Here's what they say. Glory to God in the highest. That's a very familiar Christmas phrase, but we're gonna come to understand the depth and richness of its meaning. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he, that is God, is pleased. Notice the first description given by this angel. This joy is going to come in the form of a baby. That's why we say within the Christian community, the ultimate source of our joy is not a circumstance or an event, but the ultimate source of Christian joy is actually in the form of a person. Very unusual now, this, this Christmas story. And by the way, the word joy is unique because the angel adds a prefix to it, which you're familiar with in the Greek, the literal Greek reading of this, this word. You've used it before. It's the word mega. That's literally what the text says. So the angel comes on scene and says, you all have experienced joy before, but not like this. Mega joy has entered the world in the form of a child. Very unique birth announcement. Ladies, when you were pregnant, especially with your first child, the ones whom you immediately told spouse, family, close friends. Okay? When royalty is born, the announcements are sent forth and people from all parts of the world, dignitaries, politicians, will call or visit and give their congratulations. And there's a massive celebration. Everything about the birth of Jesus, okay, these details that we're so fond of and we kind of sing about and we kind of gloss over, and we, we, we say, well, that's kind of interesting. What you have to understand is that hidden in these details is the glory of God in the highest. I'll explain more of that in a second. Mega joy, unlike you've ever known. The announcement is not made to world leaders. This is the son of God, by the way. Okay, talk about royalty. The announcement is not made behind palace walls. The announcement is made to shepherds that this mega joy has arrived where the animals are. Now, if you know anything about shepherds in the first century AD, you know that they were essentially one rung above lepers on the social hierarchy. The Talmud, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, 
It literally says that you are not obligated to help a shepherd if a shepherd is in need. Shepherds were considered thieves, often grazing their sheep on private land that they didn't own. Their testimony was not admissible in in a court of law. Uh, Shepherds were considered nomads, dirty, very blue collar. Their testimony being not admissible in a court of law, they weren't trustworthy, notorious liars. Glory to God in the highest. Isn't it interesting that the first ones to hear of the birth of Jesus are the ones whom nobody would listen to. God is communicating something about himself. See, there is no other religious leader, so to speak, if you want to call Jesus that. Much, he's much more than that. That has a birth described in this way. See, all other religious leaders have this glorious fanfare, but not, not surrounding Jesus. Why? Again, because God is communicating something about him. And, and that is, Jesus is for, that's what the angel says, it's good news for what? All people. So if Jesus is for shepherds, then nobody can look and say, well, he's not, he's, not, he's just for these people, he's just for the elite. No, Jesus is for anybody who is attentive to who he is. That's part of the message, okay? Uh, but but, but there's, there's more here. This phrase, glory to God in the high. It's very familiar, sung in several Christmas carols. Uh, but it's important to understand the depth of what's being said. So we've read this word several times as we've been studying through the book of Romans before we entered our Advent season. This word glory carries two ideas, okay? First of all, the Greek word for glory literally describes a weight, okay? something heavy. A modern-day equivalent would be if you hear something profound and it, sh- it begins to uh, shape the way you view things differently, you get a different perspective on things, you might say, wow, I've never thought of that. I've never heard that before. That's really heavy. What you're saying is it's glorious. There's weight to it, substance, meaning. Okay? Glory also means you're revealing something that was previously unknown. Something profound, but something being revealed about who you are. See, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, Pretty much everything has its own glory. You have your own glory. I'll give you an example of this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul uses the same word, Greek word for glory that the angels use to describe this announcement. Okay, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon. And then you have the glory of the stars. And then he says, you know, you look at the stars and... Stars differ in glory from each other. So in other words, what he's saying is, glory is that which you manifest about yourself. So there's one glory of the sun. It's very bright, very intense, very hot. Okay, that's the glory that it's manifesting. It provides warmth and light. And then you have the moon. It's not radiating heat, but it's, it's got its own glory. And then you see star differs from star in glory. Some stars are bigger, some, some are smaller. They're not all exactly the same. So glory is that which you manifest about yourself. You have your own glory. And depending on the day, that glory might be something you want or something you don't want. Perhaps you're having a rough day. And the glory that you're manifesting about yourself is this. Boy, very impatient, rude, intolerant, angry. That's the glory you're manifesting. Or you may be having a good day and you're like, so sweet, so kind, so loving. That's the glory you're manifesting in that day. Glory to God in the highest God is revealing something profound, weighty. 
and something unique about himself that hasn't necessarily been revealed before. Glory to God in the highest, okay? Just in that little phrase, that's what's being said. Uh, So what exactly uh, is this glory? Well, that's why the angel goes on to describe the baby three ways. Number one, savior, savior, savior. What is that, what is that about? Well, this is probably the most important part and perhaps the reason why the angel starts with this description, savior. This baby would be born to save, save who? You. Well, it's important to know what you're being saved from, yourself, (laughs) yourself. So the Bible's very clear in telling us that we have this sin problem. By the way, some of the more popular, you know, it's funny because on secular radio, they will play the most profound lyrics ever written. You ever notice that in Christmas songs? On secular radio, long lay the world in sin and error, what? Pining, you know what that word pining means? It literally means to waste away. Well, that's a, what a great description of our world. The world is wasting away. Well, what's causing that? Sin and error. The word describes something that's being dismantled, almost to the point of disintegration. We are experiencing two major wars. I said it a couple weeks ago. We have people all over the planet in greater numbers than ever feeling as though they are living in absolute desperation. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And then what's the next line? Until he appears and the soul felt its what? You know more literally? Wait. Isn't that interesting? We got a lot of people running around the planet that, that they're having very low thoughts of themselves. Well, it's not about having a more self-esteem. That's not actually the path to God. It's understanding that you were created in the image of God and you are worthy of the utmost respect, honor, and dignity, and yet you have this sin problem that separates you from the God who created you, but your soul has such worth, God sends Jesus to be your savior. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. This is why you can't preach Christmas without preaching Easter. The soul feels its worth, meaning that Jesus came to save your soul. That's actually the most important thing that you own. So there, there's a lot, there's a lot go, going on here, just in this word savior. Then he moves on, he says, he is the Christ, or in the Greek, Christos, which means Messiah. There, there are many uh, reasons why I'm a Christian. One of them is because I kinda have to be as a rational creature. Let me explain. Christianity is the most reasonable thing. Is it you're a man of faith? Well, yeah, I'm a man of faith, but actually it takes a very small amount of faith in light of what God has provided for me, okay? And it's part of the reason is hidden right here. Christos, Messiah. That's a throwback. <laughs> That's a throwback to the Old Testament and to all of those prophecies that pointed forward to a forthcoming Messiah. 
You know, how do we know it's Jesus? Well, you're gonna see in a moment one of these prophecies fulfilled in the most spectacular way. That's what's way all of these little details surrounding the birth of Jesus that we think are they're so they're so clever. It's more than clever. It's glorious. It's profoundly deep. So this Christos, Jesus is the fulfillment of hundreds of years worth of Old Testament prophecy. And then next he says he's also Lord, which is the Greek word kurios, which means master. Now you may bristle at that term master, like I'd have no master. You do. Oh, you you have a master, even if that master is yourself. We all serve someone or something, and the course of your life is directly influenced by the one whom you serve as your master. The best kind of masters are the ones who are all-knowing and benevolent. That's the way the Bible describes God. More specifically, the manifestation of God through his son, Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord. Now, additionally, the environment into which Jesus is born reveals something as well. We make Christmas a super festive event. Several years ago, I took my family to Europe, and we, were, we went to Prague, Vienna, and Budapest. And that's the first time I've ever been exposed to Christmas markets in Europe. Have you ever been there? You ever experienced this kind of thing? Unbelievable. These little towns all over Europe lit up. The sights, the sounds, and the smells of Christmas. Lights everywhere, bands playing, and the smell of all of this food in the marketplace. That's Christmas. It's all about the trees, the lights, the presents, the cookies, the food. That is so far removed from the actual Christmas event. So, so here's your sound, right? It's the, it's the sound of farm animals. Here's your smell. <laughs> Thank you. Sights, sounds, and smells. The very first Christmas, very far removed. Why? God is glorious. Something profound and meaningful. The accessibility, great joy, mega joy, and it's for all people. See, the invite isn't just for those in positions of power. The elite is for shepherds. And if it's for shepherds, it's for anyone. That's part of the message. In fact, the thing about the shepherds that make them so unique, perhaps, is that they were just attentive. They were receptive. They received the news, and they're like, let's go. Let's go. Uh, It began very differently. Luke chapter two, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So Luke, the author, is a physician, very detailed, and he includes uh, some very important observations that actually root it in real history. I've said many times the Bible doesn't tell the story of Jesus in in the style of uh, fable or myth. Once upon a time in a land far away, no, it says, let me just tell you, Quirinius, who actually, historians, Josephus and Tacitus, ancient historians tell us, this is literature outside of the Bible, affirm who this man Quirinius is. He was actually the governor in in the province of Syria, and he did take a census. Now, census were taken for two reasons. Number one, 
to gather taxes, and number two, to build a military. Verse three, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, a very, very small town, to Judea, to the city of David, that would be Bethlehem, which is called Bethlehem. Jerusalem is also considered uh, uh, the city of David, but Bethlehem was a special place because that's where King David came from and, um, and where he was crowned Israelite king because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So because he was from that province, he had to go to his ancestral homeland's base, and that would be Bethlehem. Now, earlier I said, it takes a very little amount of faith for me to be a Christian, especially in light of, in my opinion, all other worldviews or faith systems, because of the way in which the Bible is written and the things that are spoken of, of, about Jesus hundreds of years before he came. So I told you that that title, Christos or Messiah, that's a throwback to all the things that were said about a forthcoming Messiah. Like this, for example, from Micah, several hundred years before Jesus was born, the location of Jesus' birth is identified. But you, O Bethlehem. Now, there were actually several different little Bethlehems that existed at this time because Bethlehem being uh, David's place, it was popularized. And so the author is very specific, Bethlehem Ephrathah, from the region of Ephrathah. So now we know exactly where this little town is. You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This town was so small, nobody even thought about it. Nobody even thought to consider it. I don't think we have any listeners from Gila Bend, and I know I cap on Gila Bend a lot, and I'm gonna keep rolling with it until I get criticized for it. It would be like saying, the Son of God is about to be born. Where? Where? Well, let me tell you, this is one of the ways you're going to be identified. Where will the Son? New York, L.A., London, Paris. No, no. Phoenix? No. Scottsdale? Scottsdale? No. Gila Bend. <laughs> you guys have been through Gila Bend because you're all zonies on your way to San Diego. Right? on your way to the beach. What's so special about Gila Bend? The Space Age Lodge. Other than that, <laughs> I've stayed there. I've been bird hunting in Gila Bend. I've stayed at the Space Age Lodge. The restaurant's actually pretty good. And that's about it. That's about it. See, God is really good at giving signs. How are we gonna know? Well, let's start with a virgin birth. That's a good one. In a manger. Well, that's unusual. How about the little town of Bethlehem? Okay. This is why I have to be a Christian. You see what I'm saying? You know, nobody makes this stuff up. This isn't from the mind of man. You can't pull all this stuff together. And certainly Mary and Joseph would have understood these, these things. Mary, you know, she realizes, oh, I'm about to have a virgin birth. Micah talked about the city of Bethlehem. I'm on my way there. This is interesting. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. I love the way Max Locato describes this. He says this is absolute majesty in the midst of the mundane. A manger is the place where animals were kept. 
And it's also the place where God chooses to reveal his glory. It's incredible. Not born in some intimidating place behind palace walls, in the softest of cribs or beds. Not with a little golden crown awaiting to be put on his head. He will wear a crown while on this earth, you know. It won't be made of gold. It will be made of thorns. Uh, Instead, he's found in this lowly, lowly stable. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of mega joy. That is for everybody. Now, Christian, because our joy is not found in life's circumstances, it is found in the person of Jesus, that means we can be joyful even in the midst of unwanted circumstances. We read this in Romans chapter five. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because you know something that others don't. You take your sufferings up into the purposes of God, and here's what they are. Suffering produces something in you that would otherwise not be there, endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And it's gonna be very difficult for you to live life on this planet if you don't have the kind of hope can never be taken away from you. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings. Really? What are you, some kind of Christian Christian masochist? No, no. Do we rejoice in all of these unwanted things? No, no. When we celebrate all of this pain and heartache? No, that's not really what's being said. Christians have the ability to look beyond the suffering to a God who is sovereign and loving and uses all things to refine our character in order to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is where we find our hope and ultimate joy. And let me make that clear. It's not that God doesn't provide things and circumstances to give us joy in this life. He does. We find joy in relationships. But if those relationships become the ultimate source of your joy, at some point you're going to be horribly let down. And we talk about this a lot, you know. We just kind of get real around Christmas. And there's a lot of family pain. There's a lot of dysfunction that goes on. And while we share these really sweet moments with friends and family members that we love, for many of us, there is this underlying deep heartache because at the same time, we know they are far from God. What do you do with that? You take all of that up into God's larger purposes. You see, because God wants to do something through you. And God always blesses the greatest likeness to his son, Jesus Christ. And so the life and ministry of Jesus, well, he had his own unwanted circumstances and suffering. As he endured them, he became the single greatest blessing to all of humanity. So maybe there's something there. An English pastor who lived in the early 1900s, his name was J.C. Ryland. And he said, one of the reasons why we get so uptight and upset about our problems is that we don't realize the tremendous debt that we carried. 
and it was sinking us. It's like having this backpack full of rocks and we're plunged underwater and we cannot reach the surface and, and, and we're sinking. And, and, and so we lose our proper perspective of this joy, mega joy that has entered the world. And so we stress out over finances, not realizing that ultimately we have treasures laid up in heaven that can't be touched. We stress out about our health and, and, and that feels natural. But for the Christian, there is something better. The Apostle Paul says, every single body in this room, it's like a tent. What do you do with a tent? You put it up for a while, and then after a while, you're taking it down, and you put it away. That's your physical body. But Christian, you have the joy of knowing that you will inherit a body that immortality cannot touch. He goes on to say, the real problem lies in a misunderstanding You've misunderstood your greatest problem in life. You were separated from God. And Jesus came to restore that relationship. That's been solved for you. Okay. Okay. If God didn't spare his son for us, what other good things do you think God is going to withhold from you? Could the good thing be on the other side of the pain? that you're experiencing now? According to the Bible, yes. So how do you get this kind of joy in your life? Well, Jesus actually has this conversation with his followers. He's just about to go to the cross, okay? And so a dying man's words are among his most important. So what would Jesus wanna leave with them? He says, actually, let's, uh, let's talk about joy. Joy, that's the topic of one of his final conversations. He's gonna, how do you get it in your life? Jesus is gonna tell you. So he's with his disciples. Uh, they're, they're, they've just uh, had the Passover. They're either on their way or they, have a, they are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And with all that is in front of Jesus, he teaches them. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in in his love. So this is the key. Don't miss what Jesus says next. I have told you so that my joy may be in you. And you're like, wait a minute, time out, Jesus. You have joy? What are you about to suffer? See, Jesus is about to experience the excruciating physical pain of crucifixion, not to mention there's this moment where he experiences this in, in some way that's not totally understandable to me, this separation from God, where he bears the full weight of the world's sin upon him. That's a really bad day. There's a lot going on there. And Jesus says, I want you to experience my joy. Here's how. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He says, if you want joy that transcends your circumstance, here's what you need to do. Obey. Obey. We hate that word today. The word we love, autonomy, freedom. But you know, you get a few years on you in life and you realize obedience to God is actually the pathway to freedom. Obeying God is actually the pathway to freedom. And, and, and it's like, see, I think when, when I was younger, I used to think, well, God is kind of like this cosmic killjoy, right? You know what I'm saying? 
And the things that are fun, fun in life, all the things that, that I thought were fun and would give me life and happiness and pleasure and joy, God calls those sin. And the things that are boring, like going to church, that's good. My perspective has totally changed. The things that I thought would give me joy and give me life that I pursued, the Bible identifies as lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And it was to my tremendous undoing. So you come here on Friday nights and you're with the Celebrate Recovery community, and I'll tell you, people that are in recovery, they're some of the greatest people on the planet. You know why that is? Because you talk about surrender. They'll say, yeah, I obeyed this substance. Look where it got me. I obeyed this person. Look where it got me. Now, my curios, this is why one of the titles for Jesus, it's a good one. You may bristle against it. It's a good one. It's the right one. Master, Lord, we all follow somebody, and the course of your life will be determined by the masters you choose. Obey and remain in my love. To remain in the love of Jesus is to be fixated in it. I like what Henry Nouwen said. He said, joy is the experience of knowing that you are unconditionally loved by someone who gave his life for you when you were unlovable. Mega joy for all people. So let me ask you this. What's the source of your ultimate joy? What is it? Where do you find it? Of all the things that could be said about Jesus, what's being said is, here's the location of it. Outside of this location, you'll never experience the kind of joy you were created to have. I'm gonna have you bow your heads and close your eyes. That's worth contemplating right there. Where's the location of your joy? Maybe a better question is, what is robbing you? What's stealing you of your joy? It is possible to live in such a way through your own obedience, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. You are free from all of those lesser joys, those counterfeit joys. And, and that, might, that might be the source of some of your struggle, actually. You know, if you were to be very, very honest, it's the pursuit of joy in the wrong direction over the course of time that leads us to places we never thought we would end up. That's why Jesus' words are so good. He says, remain in my love. Let me be the object of your highest affection. Father, the story in and of itself is it's so unique. It just absolutely commands our attention. I pray for every heart in the room, even now, Lord, that your spirit would speak to in, in a glorious way, in a way that is both profound and revealing, that we would perhaps see Jesus anew. Lord, we tend to obey the wrong things and love the wrong things. And that's why we pause specifically this time of the year to get our center in the right place. We want to crown all the wrong things but we need to keep the crown where it belongs. First, Jesus wore a crown of thorns for us 
and then that crown of thorns would be exchanged for a royal crown, which he deserves. So Father, speak to us now, as only a supernatural God can. We ask it in the name of the one who makes it all possible. That is the Savior, the Christos, and the Master. His name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said, Amen.